Hi, and welcome to another episode of SwitchCast, a podcast delving into the world of film brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Fenton. I'm Daniel Lamon. And I'm Chris Edwards. It's Thursday, the 1st of March, 2018. On this week's show, we join the picket lines and talk about censorship and Australian film classifications. Exciting stuff, kids. In one last gasp of hope before the inevitable, we discuss our dream Oscar winners before Monday's ceremony. And as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Let's get straight into it with Red Sparrow. Brent went one-on-one with this film and filed this review for us. I grew up watching spy movies. Not only are they my grandfather's favourites, think James Bond, but also my mother's favourites. I'm thinking Long Kiss Goodnight and Born Identity, etc. So, having grown up watching films like this, I'm pretty aware of the genre and how it works. It's a tried, tested, and often tired genre. So, how does Red Sparrow stand out from the rest? And stand out it does. Now, you're going to have to excuse my terrible Russian pronunciations going on from here, but... Dominika Egorova, played by the incomparable Jennifer Lawrence, is a prima ballerina until her life takes an unexpected turn for the worst and she's forced to become a sparrow, a highly trained, seductive Russian spy, in order to look after her ill mother. While on a mission, she meets American Nate Nash, played by Aussie Joel Edgerton, who attempts to convince her to become a double agent. From this day forward, you will become sparrows. Weapons in a global struggle for power. You'll be trained in psychological manipulation. You must learn to push yourself beyond all limitation. Take off your clothes. When we are finished with you, the person you were will no longer exist. There is a traitor in the government. His last known contact is an American. Get close to him. I thought I saw you in the pool yesterday. Are we going to become friends? Is that what you want? She's a sparrow. You only matter because of what you can do for them. Work with me and make these men pay. You are better at this than any of us. Your only problem is you have a soul. It sounds like a classic spy tale, and honestly, it is. But there is something so very, very different about Red Sparrow. Lately, spy films are becoming more and more about fast-paced action and loud explosions and expensive special effects, but it's not necessarily needed. Red Sparrow has a slow, luxurious, elegant pace that really doesn't lend itself to the spy genre, but somehow really works for this one. This grace of the pace excuse me for the rhyming, is counterbalanced by the absolute brutality that is going through this film. Like, it is exceptionally graphic. Two ladies in front of us stood up and left during one particularly unappealing scene. There's a pun for you, Charlie. And the thing is, Red Sparrow really makes you work. As an audience member, you're guessing until the very last moment. All of the cast are brilliant and work just as much as the audience, especially Jeremy Irons and Charlotte Rampling. And to be honest, I was gripped the entire time. Red Sparrow is a spy film unlike any spy film I've seen before, and watching it is like having your jaw broken by a bottle of verve wrapped in a silk robe. Which is why I'm giving Red Sparrow four out of five stars. Based off of the trailer, this kind of looked like one of those, like a dumb piece of fun with a really bad Russian accent thrown in. Um, But based on early reviews and stuff, it actually... I think it's going to be okay. I think it's not bad. And plus, let's be honest, I'll watch Jennifer Lawrence in anything. I actually liked the movie Passengers, so whatever. What? I know. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> okay, let's just say I enjoyed sorry, the movie Passengers. Back, like, this is not a thing I was prepared for. I need to like prep myself for a week <laughs> up before I need to hear somebody say they like Passengers. I feel personally attacked right now. <laughs> What's a bit going like Jennifer on? Lawrence was in that film. Oh, I think you mean Oscar nominee passengers. Oh yeah, I fuck it. One, it got oh Oscar nominations, God. didn't it? What, like visual effects or something? Best score, yeah. But yes, Jess, Jennifer Lawrence generally chooses pretty exciting projects, and I quite like director Francis Lawrence. Me I've, too. I've liked, his films don't necessarily end well, but he's got a great visual sense, and he did some great work on the Hunger Games films. Yeah. Hey, he gave the best Hunger Games movie. Wh- which one? Catching. Fire. Yeah, Catching Fire. Genuinely a great film. That actually is quite a good film. 
Yeah, but like, to be honest with you, I was scared that because of the Hunger Games success and everything and uh, the Lawrence Lawrence Association, I sort of thought that this was going to be one of those films, one of those Jennifer Lawrence, oh, I owe you kind of movies. But um, We did assume that, yeah. Yeah, we did. Yeah, I think everyone assumed that. But no, I think think we're going to come out the other end okay. So, yay. (laughs) Plus, it's nice to have a strong action film with another strong female protagonist. I mean, it's like off the back of films like yeah, Atomic Blonde. he uses Blonde her sexuality and... to get away with murder, literally. <laughs> literally. But it sounds like from To All Extents and Purposes, the film is about that yes. and about how she's being forced to use her sexuality and about the politics behind that. Yeah. So it actually sounds like a thinking person's action film. Yeah. God forbid. So true. But I mean, Francis Lawrence did, outside of the Hunger Games films, he has tended towards doing... They're blockbusters, but there's got a little bit of brain and a little bit of texture to them. I am one of the few people that I can think of that really loved I Am Legend, his adaptation of the Richard Matheson book. Um, just You're correct, of, yes. Yeah. And then I'm one of the few people who liked it. I know, I'm, yes. I'm aware. I mean, if I just forget about the last five minutes, then I'm, I'm happy. But that, that first two thirds of that film, I think are quite something. Oh my God, he's worked with Tilda Swinton. <laughs> Has he? <laughs> he did. He directed Constantine. Yeah. Yes, he did. He's worked with he Tilda. did direct Constantine. Yes. Six degrees of tilderation. <laughs> Wait, what were you about to say is the other example, Daniel? I'm trying to think of what the other example is. I can't remember. What else has he done? He did Water for Elephants. Oh. Again, another film nobody really enjoyed. It was. It definitely wasn't Water for Elephants. Oh, he's, he's worked with Britney, Lady Gaga, Beyonce. He's done a lot of film clips. Maybe I'm just stuff. thinking of I Am Legend and bits of Constantine. And the Hunger Games films. Like, I like, I, I really like his Hunger Games films. Well, for the longest time, kind of like a, in a Spike Jones kind of way, he was all film clips and stuff. He's like, seriously, Britney, Aerosmith, Jennifer Lopez, Beyonce, Lady Gaga, Avril Lavigne. Oh, he did the Beyonce Girls Run the World clip. Yeah. And let's not forget who else started out as a music video director and now attains the echelon of one of the greatest directors of all time. Me. Brett Ratner. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, D- David Fincher. Oh, yeah. Obviously, who else would I be talking about? Obviously, oh my about. god. Yeah, I don't think we've squeezed him into quite enough podcasts lately. I know, can't can't go can't go damn podcast. No, otherwise, what is my purpose here? <laughs> but yes, this looks great. J Law is usually pretty great, except when she's in a X Men film. So this is an X Men film. So let's be thankful. Hey now, <laughs> I do dream it's over. It's yeah. not. And can I just say we've 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 mentioned Tilda, we've mentioned David Fincher. <laughs> I just got to throw this one out there to make it a trifecta. <clears throat> Darren Aronofsky. But he also started. Yes, he <laughs> who has worked with Jennifer Lawrence? Stooped <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> I was stooped indeed. Yes. <laughs> but anyway, one more actual point. Uh... <laughs> We're just getting all this vapid shit out of the way because actually we've got a lot to talk about in this podcast. It's actually interesting. So we're just getting all this out of our system now in a film that none of us have actually seen. Look at you in, I'm listeners. so sorry, everyone. Okay, we're reeling you in. It's just kind of nice to have Jennifer Lawrence back. Like, I feel like for a while there, like, her main film that came out one year was Passengers and she was kind of <laughs> not currying people's favour completely. But now with Mother and now with Red Sparrow and some of her press appearances recently, like... I really like her again. I have a lot of time for Jennifer Lawrence and I'm really hoping that this is another great performance from her. I don't know where she went for you. She was always somewhere special in my heart, Chris. Even when she was running around the house screaming, get out of my house! Would she there? Especially. (laughs) I mean, she was especially there for me then. I was fucking living every time she told people to not sit on the sink because it is not braced. And I was like, sit on the sink! I want to see her react to the sink! And then she did and I was fucking living. I'm very off topic. Help. No, you're not, because Jennifer Lawrence is on a great run. She just gave one of the best performances of her career. So aren't we all excited to see Red Sparrow? Yes. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. And we're also very excited to see Brent's full review at maketheswitch.com.au and Red Sparrow is in cinemas now. Also out today is The Square. Daniel, you caught this Oscar nominee at last year's Melbourne International Film Festival. So would you say it's hip to be square? Oh, dear, Charlie. Oh, okay. <laughs> Just don't acknowledge it. I mean, that's very American Psycho of you, but sure, we'll go with that. Hashtag Huey Lewis in the news reference. All right. Christian, played by Klaus Bang, is the curator of a major Swedish contemporary art museum. His latest exhibition centres around an artwork called The Square, which explores the communal responsibility to oneself and those around them. However, a series of unusual coincidences force Christian to consider his own concepts of community as his personal life and the exhibition itself begin to blow up in his face. What are the biggest challenges in running a museum? 
We're a museum of modern and contemporary art, so we need to present art that is the art of today, art that is absolutely cutting edge, and the competition is fierce. If you place an object in a museum, mm. for instance, if we took your bag and placed it here, would that make it art? Ah. How often would you say that you take women that you don't know very well and have sex with them? You know their names? Yeah. So what's my name? After exquisitely dissecting the institution of marriage in force majeure, Swedish director Ruben Oslin takes his ice pick vision and hacks into the art world with The Square, his Palm Door winning and Oscar-nominated comedy. Its thematic intentions are enormous, but it manages to hit every single target, from the vapid emptiness of self-congratulatory socially-minded art and artists, to a wider social altruism that extends from the height of the bourgeoisie to the most down-and-out beggar on the street. It's a magnificent essay of a film, but what tips it into the extraordinary is how it manages to also be an astute character piece and an hysterical, almost slapstick black comedy, one that expertly pivots from funny to disturbing to the downright ridiculous with razor-sharp precision. Claes Bang is wonderful as the shockingly handsome and shockingly clueless Christian, supported by a great cast including Elizabeth Moss in a consistently scene-stealing performance that leaves you screaming with laughter. The Square is a special film, an intoxicating mix of social satire, comic gold, and deep thematic rage. So many sequences left me gasping for air, either from laughter or from awe. This is an instant classic and an absolute must-see. Four and a half stars. Daniel used a lot of very big <laughs> words to describe this film, but basically, it's hilarious. That is the crux of this. It's very big words because it it's a very intelligent film, as well as being very <laughs> funny. It's true. Daniel and I saw this at the Melbourne International Film Festival together and we ended up walking after the film several blocks and just discussing this film. I think it was like a 10-minute walk and we laughed the entire way just recalling stuff from the film. It is just that good. I think it was probably my favourite film from the Melbourne International Film Festival last year, which is saying a lot. It's a really, really special film in that yeah, you do end up with these disturbingly hilarious things happening, which are not always things which you should be laughing at, which is what I think I really appreciate about this film. Like, its its take on comedy is so, so twisted. There are certain scenes in there, some which I will not detail too uh, intensely, mm -hmm. but um, Elizabeth Moss is the source of so many great great comedic moments in this film. How good is Elizabeth Moss? How good is Elizabeth Moss? Exactly. And from those kind of these weird, awkward social moments or these social faux pas, uh, this great comedy comes. But it also does, as Daniel says, have this great mm -hmm. commentary running underneath it as well, which makes it just so enjoyable to watch. The thing that really struck me about watching it at the film festival was the attention to detail that every single element of the film is so perfectly calibrated to have the maximum effect. Like, Oslin's direction is extraordinary. Mm. And he, the astute observations he has, not only about the way the human beings interact, but also the environment that he chooses to place the story in of placing it within the confines of a gallery or a museum. I'd actually just come from working at Melbourne Museum that day when we saw the screening, and I remember turning to one point <laughs> going, this is too real in terms yeah. of the way that people interact yeah. with objects, <laughs> interact with each other, the bureaucracy that is involved within an institution that is supposed to be about art or um, social science or or, you know, um, that, the kind of areas that museums and galleries have to deal with, the detail of it is quite extraordinary. It's so true. There's, a, there's like a running oh joke throughout the film with one specific uh, exhibit, which is just basically piles of sand on the floor, <laughs> which they keep coming back to over and over. And every time it's like a different little skit that happens with this thing. The whole time I was watching it, it kind of reminded me of a, um, oh, apologies for the pronunciation, but it reminded me of a, a Yorgos Lanthimos film. Well done. Where they, thank you, where... <laughs> Everything that happens yeah. seems so bizarre and disconnected. But once you get to its conclusion, it's this massive big picture kind of reveals itself to you. And it is so awkwardly funny. And you sort of run this roller coaster of laughing out loud to, oh my God, to, 
what the absolute fuck <laughs> and then back again and it's just it's a very fun very awkward ride and can i just say that was it claire spang is just he's a very yummy human being oh my yeah. god <laughs> that is probably a valid point to make yeah. he redefines the term dilf <laughs> good god <laughs> but also he's just so fucking clueless like he's just such yeah. he's so intelligent so charismatic so handsome and mm. such an idiot uh, like it's just mm. kind of the most he has no idea what's going on at any point he's another yeah. one of those great Ruben Oslin male characters that are just <laughs> that should be the epitome of masculine force and is just so utterly inadequate yeah yeah, I'm so yeah. deeply impressed by Ruben Osland. He's one of my favorite working filmmakers at the moment because I saw this at the film festival, not with you guys, but I saw it later on in the film festival. And a couple of years ago, back when Force Mayor was there, I saw that as well and had no idea what I was walking into, but it ended up being one of my favorite films of that year. But he's so intelligent and so astute and he doesn't seem to hate humanity as much mm. as Yorgos Lanthimos seems to. He's actually more interested <laughs> in unpacking and analyzing and exploring different facets of particularly masculinity and the institutions that masculinity has previously thrived within. And he's almost like a new Kafka to get intellectual about it. Yeah. He takes this man, he has him make one tiny mistake and he ruthlessly goes into that one mistake and every single possible awful thing that can come from that. And like Force Mayer, it's a single split second thing and it's honestly one of the best shots I've seen in a film. And then in here, it's this awful entire sequence where you're just like, no, no, stop. What are you doing? This is so dumb. What are you doing? And it keeps going and keeps going. It was almost ridiculous how long that scene went for. And then it just cascades from there and it affects every part of his life and every single thing that could fall in this facade that he's built up falls. It felt a lot like watching someone who has an understanding of comedy and timing similar to someone like Chaplin or Buster Keaton, mm. even though it's much more thematic and less slapstick than that and has definitely that Kafkaesque quality to it. It's someone who has such an astute understanding of how the rhythms of comedy can be used to amplify a social discussion in a similar way that Chaplin does in modern times where you're watching yeah. something that's incredibly funny and very silly but at the same time you're going, oh, but I also feel really quite shaken by this. And as much as the square is very funny, there are points particularly toward in the last third that are genuinely quite upsetting and yeah. quite confronting to watch. Um, and there's like there's a, there's a dinner sequence at the end, which I think is the greatest thing in the film. I think it's it's the kind of centerpiece of the film. You watch the film transform from a great slapstick black comedy into being something far bigger and more ambitious. All in the one scene. Yeah. Like the scene yeah. begins yeah. as it's the entire film in a microcosm. It begins with this mm. horrifically hilarious slapstick comedy until it just keeps going that little bit too much. And yeah, it's deeply yeah. disturbing. It's yeah. It's quite confronting. Yeah. Well, if you're intrigued, as you should be, to go and check this out and watching it in a nice full cinema with lots of people is mm. a lot of fun because um, of how much everyone's just laughing at what the fuck they're watching. Yep. You should definitely go and check it out because The Square is in cinemas now after such a long wait. And you can check out my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. Also out today is Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool. Chris caught this one at the Cunard British Film Festival. So, was this more of a supernova or black hole? I wish you'd die in Liverpool. (laughs) (laughs) Way harsh time. (laughs) I'm dead. Raise your hand if you've been personally victimised by Chris. <laughs> a lot of people listening to this podcast just raised their hands. <laughs> okay. It's 1981, and Oscar-winning old Hollywood icon Gloria Graham, Annette Benning, luminous as always, is a fading star doing modest theatre productions in Liverpool, as her career slows down and with her health similarly in decline. After collapsing backstage prior to a performance, she reaches out to old flame Peter Turner, a truly wonderful Jamie Bell, and is taken in by his working class family in order to recuperate. 
As Gloria's condition worsens, the film delicately unravels the two lovers' history, floating seamlessly between their rear-projected idyllic romance in 1979 and the quieter, sadder scenes in 1981 as they each come to terms with Gloria's decline. You know, you should go to a hospital where no. they can treat you, where they can actually... No! I've got four kids. I don't need five. I'm not a kid! You are all I need. We all know what's up, love with Gloria. I don't know what you want me to say. You can start with the truth. Tell me how I look. You look beautiful. Time among all of your enemies. I just want to go back to Liverpool. Say it again, Peter. Liverpool. Oh. You shouldn't look at me. you look like Lauren Bacall when you smoke? Humphrey Bogart. Oh. I didn't like it then either. Framing proceedings as more of a glass menagerie type memory play than a straight retelling of the facts, director Paul McGuigan brings to the table a visual flair not often found in most biopics, creating free-flowing shifts between the two time periods, slipping in and out of memories in the space of single leisurely movements of the camera. The two stars are fantastic. Benning brings quiet dignity and glamorous sensuality, and her movie star approximation of a movie star becomes just as fascinating in its own right. But surprisingly, Belle is the real draw here, delivering what might just be one of the best male performances of the year. Charming and playful one minute, then soulful and compassionate the next, Belle weaponizes his charisma and good looks and plays to the hilt Peter's boyish charms and complete adoration for Gloria. Look, to all intents and purposes, this should be just another below-average British biopic, and sure, there's a bit of a lack of specificity around who Gloria Graham is, and that occasionally undermines Benning's wonderful work. But I can't quite deny that there's a surprisingly honest emotional force that the film is able to build and deliver. So, I'm giving it three stars. We complain a lot on this podcast about the lackluster nature of biopics. Um, mm -hmm. And so I have to admit, when I heard about this film, when it first came up on my radar, I did kind of feel like I was going to be watching something that would fit in within that category. But it's wonderful. It's a really wonderful film. And it's beautifully, imaginatively mm. approached particularly the way it moves from time and place, the way that it plays with cinematic tools and yeah. tricks. There's a whole sequence where Gloria and Peter are driving along the coast in California and it's done through very obvious rear projection. And it's like all those details, are, there's such a great attention to detail and a care with this film, both in terms of how it's told and how it represents both Peter and Gloria and how it represents their relationship. It's such a surprisingly romantic and sexy film. Oh yeah, it's fantastic. And particularly the chemistry between the two of them. Like their meeting scene is the two of them dancing in her boarding room oh. and it's hot. <laughs> yeah. It's ridiculous. From both, From both of them, but also particularly Jamie Bell, my God. We'll we'll get to that. We'll definitely get to that. In, in terms of Annette Benning's performance, I mean, Annette Benning is consistently one of the most extraordinary actors working today, but I found something so deeply, deeply, deeply moving about her performance in this film, particularly charting Gloria's decline, mm. both her decline in her health, but also her decline in her confidence of her, in herself. Um, and she just the, she just shone on camera. She just looks so beautiful. She really does. The camera loves her in this movie and she really rewards it. There are scenes with just her in front of a mirror doing makeup that are some of the most heartbreaking scenes you've seen in cinema in a while. But I do have to say, like, as impressed as I was by the playing with a biopic form and with the chemistry between the leads and the performances of the leads, there are things about the movie that still kind of nag at me like i think mm. it's a beautiful romance but it's not always the most specific of romances some yeah. beats and moments do feel a bit played out and a bit predictable even when the film's trying to like wrong foot you and make you think one thing in order to reveal in like 10 15 minutes that it was something else and it's like yeah well i kind of saw that coming which does stick out when so much of the film is so special and singular yeah that the, that the more cliched moments do kind of thud a little yeah and the you must remember this episode on gloria graham shows that she was a fascinating woman and i feel like as good as annette benning is in this movie at times that uniqueness and what made her so interesting is kind of glossed over mm, that is true and this isn't the most interesting 
time of her life to focus on. And those times do get lip service a little bit at different points in the film. But by the end of it, you don't really know that much more about Gloria Graham specifically rather than an aging film star. But I guess that means before we wrap up, we probably should talk about what is surprisingly maybe the best thing about this film, which is Jamie Bell. Oh my God. Who has just like, it's like you just, I sat there watching it going, you're fucking extraordinary. This is the best performance he's given since Billy Elliot. Oh yeah. But it's also the first film that's actually taken advantage of his talent, like not his talent, his physical talents or his good looks. And he looks- Oh boy. Indescribably handsome in this film, but also the, the depth of it, the attention to detail he has in his performance and the humanity of his sheer devastation. The sheer like well of feeling that he brings to every single moment and every single scene. He's like a raw nerve. There's a moment of him standing in the middle of the street at night that's in the last oh. few minutes of the film that I honestly thought I was going to have a breakdown because it was so sad. It was so beautiful. Mm. I don't understand why he doesn't get more attention for this. I don't understand why either of them didn't get nominated. It's because male leads in romance films are so often brushed over because the genre itself is seen as this like feminine thing and therefore less legitimate, which it's not. But it's the reason it was such a surprise that Ryan Gosling actually got an Oscar nomination for La La Land. Yeah. It's because this type of skill set isn't as highly respected as someone like, oh, Gary Oldman, he disappears into Churchill. No, he doesn't. He's Gary Oldman. It's a skill set that should be equally respected because Jamie Bell in this film is sublime. It should elevate him to be working with amongst the greatest directors on some of the greatest material today. And if you want to hear more about it, you can find my full review at makethe-switch.com.au and Film Stars Don't Die in Liverpool is in cinemas now. Also out today in limited release is Bombshell, the Hedy Lamarr story. The documentary looks at the fascinating life of one of the most ravishingly beautiful actresses of the 1930s and 40s, who was also responsible for inventing the basis of cell phones and Bluetooth technology. She was the inspiration for Snow White and Catwoman and a technological trailblazer who perfected a radio system to throw Nazi torpedoes off course during World War II. Wow. She was such a big star. She seemed so untouchable. She was so ahead of her time. She said more than once, my beauty is my curse. And by that she meant people never got past her face. There are stories almost like a prison escape. She created her own reality, and I find that really fascinating. She did have a secret. Wi-Fi, Bluetooth, that's her technology. You think, how could this be possible? If I wanted to be harsh, I would say she was a plagiarizer. You don't get to be Hedy Lamarr and smart. And I know what I did. There comes a point when you can't take any more than you have to make yourself heard. Weaving interviews and clips with never-before-heard audio tapes of Hetty speaking on the record about her incredible life, taking us from her beginnings as an Austrian Jewish emigre to her scandalous nude scene in the 1933 film Ecstasy, to her groundbreaking but completely uncredited inventions, to her latter years when she became a recluse, impoverished and almost forgotten. Bombshell, the Hetty Lamar story, brings to light the story of an unusual and accomplished woman spurned as too beautiful to be smart, but a role model to this day. Alright, now let's take a look at the upcoming films in our trailer app. Here's Best Friends. Trust me, friendship before money. Can you say that? Yeah. What? What? Trust me, friendship before money. Right. I have a good story for you. A familiar story. One guy meet another in a big city. They have dream, but something change. Greed, hatred, and jealousy. You understand the words? Yes. Okay. So this film stars Tommy Wiseau and Greg Sestero. It is written by Greg (laughs) Sestero. It isn't directed by either one of them. (laughs) Yes, thank God. So Greg Sestero proved his writing chops when he wrote the 
amazing book, The Disaster Artist, which then sort of but not really turned into the film. So he has writing chops. Screenplay writing chops, I don't know, but he has writing chops. This film, however, I feel that given the release of The Disaster Artist and the accolades it's gotten and the attention, that this film maybe have gotten a bit too, and the stars as well, may have gotten a bit too big for their britches. I realise that The Room has a cult status following and people love it and hate it and everything in between. But this movie is being released in two parts, you know, a la Kill Bill (laughs) style. Two volumes. When I saw that, I went... Two volumes. Two volumes? I struggled to sit through the 90-second trailer because it looks so bizarre and really cheaply made. It kind of looks almost like it's a more accurate adaptation of The Disaster Artist, actually. I was like, this looks very familiar. Yes, well, Tommy Wiseau plays a mortician in it, and I think there's a robbery, (laughs) and it looks very bizarre. Look, I'm a massive fan of... of, I was about to say The Room. I'm not a massive fan of The Room. I appreciate The Room. I'm a massive fan of The Disaster Artist, the book. Not so much the film. So I am fascinated by these two people coming together again and making a film. I don't know. I don't think it's going to have my attention too much. Look, I'm not going to lie. Didn't watch the trailer. And it's because, nah, (laughs) life's too short. Tell us what you thought. Sure, I might live till I'm 80 or 90. I might be gone in a few years. I don't want to spend my time watching this trailer. I can't imagine a world in which this is something that I need in my life. I am officially <laughs> assigning both volumes one and two to Chris to review. Sucker. <laughs> 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 yes, like the room is awful. Like it's 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 an irredeemable. Like I've watched it once and I'm like, I'm never going to watch that again. I barely want to think about that I've ever watched it at all. And the disaster artist is a book. I kind of feel like I really love the book too, Jess, but I kind of feel like it's a book in spite of Greg's hysteria. I don't think it's a particularly well-written book. I think it's just the story is so extraordinary yeah. that it overcomes the lack of skill in the writing. And I look at this and I'm going, guys, like, it feels like they're beating a dead horse with the same story, the same basic premise. That They think that the love for it is going to carry over into a two-volume epic. Like, yeah. I mean, realistically, for the general public, the general public didn't come out to see The Disaster Artist because of The Room or Tommy Wiseau. They came out because of James Franco being funny. That's actually the reason why they would have come out. I think they're overestimating how popular they are. Yes, very much so. Well, to check out all the latest trailers, head to youtube.com forward slash make the switch AU. All right, now it's time for everyone's favorite topic, censorship. Here in Australia, we've got a, well, complicated history when it comes to film classifications and restrictions. And now the conversation's back thanks to a film that everyone here at Switch positively froths over, my beloved Ladybird. With a particular perfect punchline mangled and a brief emotionally resonant image of a penis removed, let's all get our Margaret Pomeranz on and talk about censorship. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw a spanner in the works. This isn't actually about... Censorship. Nothing was censored here (laughs) per se. It was simply edited to remove two, in particular, more adult parts of the film, very brief, very adult parts of the film, in order to bring down the rating to make this film watchable by a wider audience. It was done all for the benefit of the film. This isn't the first time it's been done. This won't be the last. So Australian audiences who are going to see Lady Bird, you have to watch it without, I'm sorry to say, a two-dimensional flaccid penis, and the word, see you next Tuesday. I get where you're coming from, but I see it as an issue of self-censorship, wherein because of our kind of ridiculous ratings board and the way that they classify different words and different images, a film distributor has felt the need to self-edit in order to get that wider audience. I agree that they should try and get that wider audience and like as many people as possible should be able to see Ladybird, particularly young women of that age group that can now access it easier, but they shouldn't have to. Like that one use of the word and the one image shouldn't have given it an MA15 plus rating. That's ludicrous. And that use of the word is actually one of the funniest Mm. moments in the entire film. And the audience, when I, when I saw it the second time, because the first time I saw it with Chris was the unedited cut. But the second time I saw it, which was the changed version, I actually heard the audience make a weird noise of confusion because mm. also they've replaced it with a word that is so out of date and out of use that no one actually knows what it means. Definitely not in Australia, yeah. 
contextually, you understand what they're talking like about. Like, kind of, but it doesn't have the same impact. I, I, I actually didn't. I only found out this morning what it meant. It's a bit weird because, as the guys say, the rating system here is a bit strange. Yes. Actually, the only difference between an M rating and an MA rating in Australia is the nudity component. The fact that an M cannot have any kind of nudity whereas an MA film can. Now, I think the fact that pairing that with the C word kind of pushed it over the edge into an MA rating, but a couple of things. One, when on earth has an MA film ever deterred people under the age of 15 from seeing it? Like, that's just a ludicrous concept to begin with in Australia. People go to MA rated films all the time and it's no problem. But too yeah like why did they decide to do it after the film's release as opposed to before especially when it came out in australia months after it had been released in the u.s australian censorship does have a strange tendency towards unusual acts of recutting or changing films depending on what they want the rating to be um in the 90s there was a section of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, the Disney film that was edited out. Even that Fox animated film Anastasia had little bits of censorship put in it in Australia. I remember re-watching it as an adult on DVD or Blu-ray and going, oh, there are whole sections of this film I've never seen before. Um, but also Sorry, we- which part of Hunchback of Notre Dame was edited out? Um, the sequence where Claude Frollo was seeing about what he wants to do to Esmeralda, any references to him wanting her sexually what? were removed from the film. They've been put back in on DVD and Blu-ray, they were, but I, we, I watched a VHS copy my grandmother had like many years afterwards and I was watching it and I know that film back to front because I love it. And yeah, I got to the point and I was like, what? It was gone. That whole section was gone. My hope is that maybe when Lady Bird gets to Blu-ray, maybe they won't care and they'll put the extra bit back in. But also there are things like when, when Harry Potter and the um, Prisoner of Azkaban was released originally in uh, first classified, it was classified M and the studio asked for it to be reevaluated to make it PG because they didn't think that kids would go and watch the film, be allowed to watch the film when it was rated M. Um, Hannibal was originally rated MA when it was released in Australia and the public outcry forced it to be rated R. Mm. We have a very weird classification system in Australia. I mean, there are some films that are almost, like you know, Mysterious Skin was almost banned completely. Salo Pasolini's film was banned up until only like maybe 10 years ago. So yeah, this move with Lady Bird doesn't surprise me because of our track record. It more just disappoints me because... It's, again, it's a film that's like, really? This one? So I'd also like to point out that film distributors don't always have to edit a film in order to get at the mm. classification yeah. that they want. Uh, they can actually appeal yep. and just make yep. it and just make an argument for their case. And I'm going to make a bold statement here. And I'm going to say that the distributors of Lady Bird didn't fight yeah. uh, hard enough for this one. As Daniel was saying, it's like this film, a penis in a magazine and a single utterance of the C word. It just didn't seem like much of an argument for me. It's Australia, guys. I like, know. What's one swear word that Australians all know we and love? We use the C word when ordering breakfast, for Christ's sake. I mean- <laughs> yes. If there was any country in the world that was going to love the shit out of Lady Bird making that and- joke, it was okay. going to be us. Yeah, this one like, was- I'm offended as an Australian. Yeah, thank you. Un-Australian move. Thank you. This is totes approach here, and they just went way overboard. They could have, should have, would have. Lady Bird people, you should have fought harder for this one. I'm putting it out there. Oscar-nominated classic neutered. Speaking of the Oscars... The most exciting date in the film buff calendar is only days away. But after one of the most exciting nomination lineup in years, including lots of nominations for Lady Bird, whom we love, this year's Oscars are looking to actually turn out to be woefully predictable. So, to build our hopes for some surprises, we're going to name some of our dream Oscar winners from this year's nominees. Now, I quizzed everybody about what they hope will win the Oscar in various categories, and we're going to talk about what some of their responses were. So, uh, when asked about Best Picture, Charlie and Chris abstained because they couldn't make a decision because there were just too many. Uh, and Jess hey and I now. both... It's too hard. No, because it's true. It actually is a really hard one because there are at least, like, at least seven films in that list that are really fucking great. There's so many deserving winners yeah. in there. Yeah. It's because I'm so... So happy. Yes. Which just makes the fact that a certain film is probably going to win even more depressing because it's just one film that none of us really want to see win. But Jess and I both unanimously said, surprise, surprise, that Call Me By Your Name was the one that we'd love to see win. Again, they're all really wonderful. Yeah, I wouldn't be disappointed. No, that's for sure. Lady Bird won. Great. Get Out won. Great. Dunkirk won. Great. Like The Shape of Water. Great. They're all, they're really lovely films. All right. Uh, best actress though. 
was a bit of a Hunger Games. Everyone disagreed. Oh, but the person... Boy, oh boy, was it, Daniel? And actually, Chris, you're the one that came out with the surprise. Because, I mean, I had Sosha, Jess had Francis, Charlie had Margot. But you, who did you have? Now, I know if you've listened to the podcast, if you've read my review, you probably know that I'm a bit of a Meryl Streep obsessive. And I'm a bit sad. I'm a bit of an idiot. You know, whatever. I love her. She's my everything. <sighs> Charlie. Um, but... <laughs> It's been a very long time since I've looked at a Meryl Streep performance and been like, that's one of the best performances of her career. And that's what the post is. She's fuck off good in there. And as much as I almost said Saoirse Ronan because she is my everything, Meryl Streep's performance in the post is the one that I'm giving it to. So that was our little Hunger Games on Best Actress. Best Actor, though, was the complete opposite. <laughs> Every single one of us agreed that we all hope, cross our fingers, we'd love to see Timothee Chalamet Yay! win the Oscar um, for actually giving a performance and not for putting on a lot of makeup. I actually saw someone on Twitter comment, there are more articles on Gary Oldman's makeup and he, the makeup artist behind it than there are talk about Gary Oldman's performance. Gary Orban gives a really great performance. Timothee Chalamet gives one of the greatest performances in history of cinema. More like <laughs> Timothee Chalamet. Uh, <laughs> Hello, that 911. That's <laughs> hella tight. That's hella tight. <laughs> so, uh, best supporting actor. Jess and I both agreed on this one. Yay. Jess, who did you think you would love to see get Best Supporting Actor? Oh, the long underappreciated Richard Jenkins. Yes. He is so beautiful and so fabulous. And in The Shape of Water, he's just gorgeous and heartbreaking. He's it's a great so performance, good when, yeah. he, when he draws green jello, it's just magical. And... <laughs> <laughs> No one can sell a drawing oh of green jello like Richard Jenkins. Yep. No, but he That's he, the Oscar clip. Yeah. You've picked it. <laughs> so this is this is actually Richard Jenkins' um, second Oscar nomination. He was nominated for 2009's The Visitor, which was also fantastic. And I just every time I see him, he makes me happy and in the shape of water, he was mm. oh. The scene in the diner in particular is is oh beautiful and he's, so heartbreaking. Any of the scenes where he's interacting with the creature as well. Oh my God, am I getting convinced by you? The more that I think about it, because we were all picking different scenes and I was about to be like, oh, and every scene with Sally Hawkins. And I think between us, we've just listed every scene he's in in the film. <laughs> yes, we have. He just plays this such a heartwarming and such a sympathetic character and he just plays sort of like the best in everyone and you just I just love him and I'm I, uh, Richard Jenkins I just I can't I can't get enough of him. Do you want to change your vote Chris? Do you want to change it to Richard Jenkins? Because you chose, chose Willem Dafoe. Who do you want, nah. do you want to change it? Willem. I'm my own man. I'm special. I'm unique. I'm staying <laughs> with Willem Dafoe. You do you. I will. You <laughs> do you. Will. All right. So best supporting actress. Both Chris and I agree that we think Laurie Metcalf should win. Jess is stuck with uh, which is Alison Janney. But Charlie, Alison. Charlie, you had someone different. Who did you choose? I'm sticking with the Shape of Water bandwagon, and I am going with Octavia Spencer as supporting actress. I mean, okay, for one, she is just like one of the most mm. effervescent actors to watch on screen ever. She's just amazing in practically every role that she's in. But I just, she was such a, a point of contrast in this film, but also extremely authoritative as well, even to her superiors. It's just, it's a, it's a great performance. I loved watching her every moment again in this film. I can't wait to see her not in the 60s. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. So true. That's true. I hear maybe she'll be able to do other decades. <laughs> and I, She's just that good. I'm on the edge of my seat. I love her. Black women in modern well, society. What? That's crazy, man. That's the acting categories done. Now we move into, I think, uh, the category, which is probably one of the most, the best set of nominees I've ever seen in my lifetime for any category, which was Best Director. Jess and I both think it's Greta Gerwig. Greta! Charlie went with Jordan Peele. Yep. But uh, Chris, you threw a spanner in the works. Who do you think deserves Best Director? Once again. So, I mean, option A, I take all five nominees. We run off to an island together. We have such a great time and I just praise them until the end of time because they're fantastic. And this, as you're saying, not since Best Actress of 2010 have we had a category this strong. Am I right, ladies? Everyone knows what I'm talking about. I'm not an Oscar nerd. Anyway, but my pick is Paul Thomas Anderson because I think Phantom Thread is easily one of the best directed films in many a moon. And 
Like, it's a beautiful little makeup gift for There Will Be Blood Missing, because it was the Coen Brothers year. And just the things that he does with the camera, with the actors, with everything in that film. Toast. Oh, the things that he does with mushrooms. Iconic. <laughs> I think for all of us in agreement that whoever ends up winning in that category, we will be very, very happy. Yeah. We will yes, be there will. cheering them along. Yeah. Uh, best original screenplay. Now, I'm going to throw this one to Jess because Jess is often a great champion for original screenplays and great dialogue. So, who do you hope will win best original screenplay? Call me by your name. <laughs> no. Original screenplay. <laughs> 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 That's how much she loves it. God damn it. She wants it to get both screenplay awards. <laughs> Honestly, Sam deserves That's it. Right. Okay, sorry. She's also hoping it wins best hair and makeup, uh, best editing. <laughs> original original screenplay, Jess. Jordan Peele's Get Out. So not only is this really exciting because it's a horror film, although according to the Golden Globes and actually Jordan Peele, it's a, it's a comedy. But here's what's fabulous about this whole film. It's almost like a giant magic trick. And everyone knows that in a grand illusion and a magic trick, there are three acts. And yes, oh I'm about God. to sort of kind of quote the prestige. But there you is the to pledge. You Michael Caine accent. The first part is called the pledge. <laughs> the turn and then there is the prestige and this film does it so beautifully and so subtly and the fact that it mixes it it's all under the guise of race and there's so much more going on and it's fantastic and i i love that it was written by jordan peele who is a comedy writer actor and director previously and he's just sort of come out of the woodwork and spun everyone on their heads and just gone look at what i can do and it's fantastic and audiences just gobbled it up nom, 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 nom. <laughs> and i just i want him to walk away with the best i do i want him to walk away with the best original not adapted original screenplay for get no, out no 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 that is clearly not the pinnacle of the screenwriting abilities. <laughs> hey, that was that moment was improvised in her audition. Oh. I listened to an interview with him the other day and he said that he created that in his audition with Betty Gabriel. Just to make it even better. Nice. So we come to Best Adapted Screenplay, and not only do we all unanimously agree on this one, it also is the front runner for once in this Yay. category. So everybody, what is it? What do we want? Call, call me by your name. name. Molly's gay. Fuck off, Chris. Sit back down. Charlie, why call me by your name? Look, I think this story is told so beautifully. Despite it being a gay love story, it ends up being so much more. It actually is just a love story for the ages. Just watching these two characters dance around each other on screen, the dialogue that they have, which is just so, there's so many quotable lines, but, uh, and I, I can't say I've read the book. I know some of you guys have and may be able to comment better, but I think that the elements that have been selected for the film, I think are just perfect. I don't think that you could do much more with this screenplay to make it more affecting on screen. I really don't. I've read the book and it is a pretty extraordinary piece of adaptation. It takes so much about the, the core ideas of the book and actually just the, the, the texture of the book and adapts it in a cinematic form beautifully. And when James Ivory wins this Oscar, he will be the oldest person in this category to ever win an Oscar. And if Agnes Varda doesn't win the Oscar for Best Documentary for Faces Places, James Ivory will be the oldest person to ever win a competitive Oscar for Call Me By Your Name. So we'll see what happens on Oscar night, whether he holds that record. So, best cinematography. Jess and Charlie both agree it's Shape of Water. I think it should go to Dunkirk, but Chris... Chris is going with the expected answer. What are you going is with? Is it expected or is it just well past due? Probably the latter, actually. This is what, his 12th nomination, I want to say? Something like that. That could be The greatest cinematographer wrong. in the world, yes. Roger Deakins, cinematographer of No Country for Old Men, Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Basically, every iconic Coen Brothers moment, every great cinematographical moment, that's not a word, Skyfall. Anyway. <laughs> the Shawshank Redemption. It's his time. Blade Runner 2049 is one of the most visually striking films. Oh my God, I always say this, don't I? In like many a moon. God, I need more words. Um, <laughs> Can I just say, I'm always a bit weary when such... 
CGI heavy films get nominated in the cinematography category. I don't, obviously I don't know enough about the art to comment on it, but I do, I need someone to educate me on this. Like, it's actually where, not that where CGI do we draw the line? Like if, if there are a bunch of actors standing in front of a green screen and then someone sits there and goes, oh, the cinematography, you kind of sit there going, really? Okay, actually I can, I can speak to this a little bit because okay, Blade Runner 2049, there's that, kind of iconic image of Ryan Gosling on a bridge as this huge kind of hologram vision is in front of him of this mm-hmm. young woman who has been a character in the film up to that point. But she's this huge pink hologram and he's standing on this bridge at night in the rain. But what Roger Deakins contributed to that image is, so the hologram, yes, was visual effects, but Roger Deakins was behind the ginormous wall of lights, of pink lights that were put in place of the CGI character to shine on Ryan Gosling's face in exactly the right way. He was in control of like the smoke, of the framing of everything in order to get that iconic shot. So yes, it was augmented by CGI, But really, the colour palette, the visual framing and the visual design of that image is thanks to Roger Deakins. And a lot of the images in Blade Runner 2049 were done in camera. For example, the Mm. sex scene is done almost entirely in camera which is quite extraordinary considering like very little of it is CG. So no, that's a very good point, Jess. But in the case of Blade Runner, a lot of it is down to Roger Deakins' work. Mm. Now we come to best editing. Speaking of Jess, Jess, who would you like to see win best editing? Baby Driver. Yes. Okay, so not only was this one of my favourite movies of 2017, but the entire film is cut, a.k.a. edited, (laughs) to precision, to music. It is off its tits excellent, okay? (laughs) The whole thing is edited to music. There's someone else who can do that. It is so good and it's so precise and it is so on point and it's just, it is... Sorry, Daniel. It is a fucking masterpiece, okay? (laughs) And it is going to walk away with the Oscar because no one else in this category deserves it more than Baby Driver. When you're sitting there and you're watching it and you're going, holy shit, there are more than one cut per second in some particular sequences. It is so, so detailed, Mm -hmm. the editing in this film. If it does not take home this category, as well as many of the sound categories, I've got to say too, because they add to that element so, so well, I will be so surprised. Speaking of sound, we'll get into the last two categories we're going to talk about, which is to do with music. So, uh, one of my favourite categories is the best original score. Um, Out of the four of us, there was an even split. Jess and Charlie think it'll be The Shape of Water, but Chris and I both think it will be Phantom Thread, Mm. and I reckon The Phantom Thread's going to get it. Um, I think in a real world, you will be correct, too. I mean, mean, apart from the fact that Johnny Greenwood was deemed ineligible for his score for There Will Be Blood, which was one of the greatest scores ever written for a film, his score for Phantom Thread is so intelligent, beautiful, incredibly listenable, and integral to the tapestry of the film. So I mean, the Shape of Water score is gorgeous. I love that score as well. And it did win the Golden Globe. But there's something very distinctly cinematic about Phantom it's Thread's score. Lush. Oh. It's lush. It's haunting. It's hilarious. It's disturbing. It's beautiful. So I, I, that's who I hope. And last of all, we come to Best Original Song. Unfortunately, for those at home who hoped we would say, this is me, you go <laughs> fuck yourself because no way. Um, Charlie, three of us picked the same one you included. What would you say is your hope? <sighs> Look, I, as much as I'd love to see Coco win because, like, Amazing. It just breaks my heart. Remember Me is not my favorite Coco song. And so the other option I have is Call Me By Your Name. It is Sufjan Stevens, who is pretty much my number one artist of all time, my musical idol, essentially. Um, Man who can do no wrong. And um, one, it's just going to be immensely mind-blowing to see him perform live which is now confirmed officially he's going to be performing live at the oscars <laughs> that is going to be superb and it's going to be like him sitting there with a guitar just showing off his talent that is what he does best but also the fact that he's actually a potential to win an oscar oh my god i just i just cannot explain my excitement for this this man is just one of the most talented people on this planet he is so immensely creative and i 
I really hope he does take it out. It's also a song that is so intrinsically part of the tapestry of the film. Yes. Like it's it's it perfectly captures exactly what the experience of watching that film is like, the the memory and the texture that it leaves you with afterwards. It's one of the few songs I can think of in years that so perfectly is the film for which it is written for. So there are our hopes and our dreams for what the Oscars are going to do on Monday. It won't. We're How will they be very wrong. That Billboard's oh. film will probably win fucking everything and that'll be the end of time that and Billboard's as we know it. Um, but we will be doing a live stream on Monday from the Oscars, which we'll tell you about a little bit more about later. So you'll be able to find out from us and hear our tremendous disappointment. I'm so scared, you guys. <laughs> I'm so scared. And jubilation. And if you want to watch me live throw a fucking hissy fit, watch Timothy Chalamet not win on Monday live on the interwebs. You'll be able to see many of us throw hissy fits at the same time. I suspect we will all be throwing hissy fits. Yeah, Charlie, I might break the the no C word rule on that. And I'll have Chris on the phone. I'll just be sobbing. For my own safety, I will be removing all sharp implements from the (laughs) filming location. While Brent sits next to me going, I have not seen the film. Wait, so is that the gay one? Because I don't think he's seen it yet. (laughs) I don't see the film, but he's hot. Has he still not seen it? still not? I doubt he's seen the film. We have some great giveaways up for grabs this week. We're giving you the chance to win one of five copies of Daddy's Home 2 on Blu-ray. Co-dads Dusty and Brad, played by Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell, are put to the test when their own fathers, Mel Gibson and John Lithgow, turn up for Christmas. As old rivalries create new problems, Dusty and Brad's partnership is put to the ultimate test. Plus, you still have a chance to take part in our Mammoth Challenge. We want you to pick this year's Oscar winners, just like we just did. It's not easy, but the payoff is great. Whoever gets the most correct will score a massive prize pack from Switch. We're not making it easy. You have to share your predictions in every single category this year. So use your film knowledge for your chance to win now. And for your chance to win this and all of our great prizes, head to maketheswitch.com.au forward slash comps now. And before we go, we'd like to offer you some cinematic inspiration with each of us suggesting one film that you should see this week and why. I'm up first and I have to say... This is the final, final Best Picture film that I get to choose. Next week, we'll know who the Oscar winners are. And since this seems to be a running thing on this podcast, Chris has done it, Jess has done it, I'm pretty sure some others have done it, I'm going to cheat. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Yeah. Clutching pearls. What? Oh, my goodness. Oh, there are permanent marks on my hands from how hard I'm clutching my pearls. Oh, my God. My nipples are hard. The, right the blood doors Steady have stream of semen coming out of me right now. The fox from the Antichrist has lifted its head and screamed, <laughs> Chaos Reigns. Go on. Chaos Reigns. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm going to take us back a long, long way in history to a time... 12 months ago, when we selected <laughs> La La Land as the winner and then were surprised by Moonlight oh, as the actual This winner. is a terrible cheat. <laughs> I think it's a great cheat because I think both films are immensely, immensely worthy films. But, 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 the reason that I love this so much is I was re-watching last year's Oscars and just the way Jordan Horowitz handles oh, the, yes. the handover of the Oscar is so, so beautiful to watch. <laughs> I, I just loved that moment when he's like, you know what? We didn't win, but I am so happy to give this award to the guys at Moonlight um, who are so deserving of this as well. That was so beautiful. The fact that it showed so much camaraderie between that part of Hollywood, even though there's such different films Oh, it just moved me so much. See, I thought you were going to recommend La La Land, and oh, now yeah. I now you're just recommending a great moment in yeah. film history, and I'm so proud of you for cheating. Like, this is <laughs> oh, wait, so you're recommending that is a great the speeches. Yeah. You're recommending the moment from the Oscars. I, I recommend everyone go and rewatch that because it's great, and uh, but also just like the entire awkwardness of, of Warren Beatty as well is just superb. Yeah. So that's, that's great into itself. But these are two fantastic films in their own right. Everyone should go watch both of them too so that I, I have a triple header this week first of all go watch the oscars best picture nomination uh, and announcement from last year and then go watch moonlight plus la la land why not make an awesome day of it <laughs> my god oh my god no charlie 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 i've got i'm getting ptsd right now you have to understand i live blog the oscars every year since switch's inception and last year 
I basically mentally switched off once they announced La La Land and I'm happy. I'm just like finally getting to calm down after three and a half hours and then all of a sudden I look up and all hell has broken loose on the, on the stage of that theatre and I'm like, wait, what the fuck happened? What did I miss? Oh my God, oh my God. I had to go back and start typing and deleting everything I just wrote. It was just, it was the worst like three minutes of my entire life. I was at Chris's house. We're having a, an Oscars party and we'd all literally turned away from the TV and I think it was either me or someone else turned away. It was me. Guys, it something's me. happening. Guys, something's happening. Because the paying attention. And all of a sudden there's just four people in a room screaming at one another. From the first moments where you see like yeah. stage managers walking on with their oh. headsets and like picking up envelopes and looking at them and you're just like, hey, something is not right here. Oh, it's so good. It's so good. But yeah. I love the way it was handled. I think that is like an, an exemplary showing of deservedness of an acclaimed film. Look, honestly, wasn't impressed by Cheat to begin with, but no, that's fair. I'll, I'll allow this one, Charlie. I'm good. I'm good. I'll allow you. I'll allow you to appropriate my legacy and do this cheat. I don't think you have much of a fucking choice, but. Uh, um. <laughs> Could have been better. All right, Jess, your turn. Yes. What have you got for us this week? All right, there's been too much fancy Oscars talk, so oh, I'm no. pulling <sighs> a movie out of the uh, out of the uh, so bad it's good file. I'm shaking in my boots. <laughs> the film I'm about to announce is going to have a sort of oh, follow up soon, so this is why it's uh, it's currently on my mind. I'm very very excited. Okay, uh-huh. in 2011, there was a telemovie released called William and Kate. What's that? And it was the most god-awful telemovie about just prior to William and Kate's wedding. And it was all about how they met and fell in love in university and how they moved in together and then they got married and it ends at the engagement. And it is so bad. It is so good. And it's actually got a really decent cast in it. I don't like this episode like, of Black Okay, I just want to also want to point out I'm that the actors it. who play this Kate and William are, <laughs> <laughs> the actors who play Kate and William are American. So the reason why this is in my mind is because obviously uh, Meghan Markle and Prince Harry's wedding is coming up. So <gasps> there's going to be a Meghan and Harry movie coming out in like April or something. It's in like some form of production right now. And I'm so beside myself. An American horror style story with the same cast. <laughs> I know, I'm so beside myself. Ex- excited, my nipples are hard. But so I just want to point out that this movie has, the William and Kate movie has Camilla Luddington, who people will know from Grey's Anatomy. It has Charles Shaughnessy, who people will know from The Nanny in it. It's got Ben Cross. It's got Serena Scott Thomas in it. It actually has a really decent cast. But, um, yeah, it's just oh where they, they fictionalise these two people's entire relationship and it's just so tragically, fabulously bad. And I love it. I've actually seen it like five times. It's so good. I'm legitimately crying right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm legitimately scared of you. <laughs> You'll thank me later. It's okay. I'm done. Oh, dear. That was a lot. <laughs> All right, Daniel, can we please move on? Can you tell us what you're choosing this week for a film recommendation? You see, I was going to recommend something that was like a good, solid Daniel Lemon recommendation, but I also chose something that is to create chaos <laughs> in this moment. Um, so I'm sorry. I'm going to recommend a film that only came out in the past 12 months, um, a film that has gotten quite a bad rap from quite a few of the uh, other writers on this website, but a film that I think is magnificent and I love it and I've watched it twice and I will watch it many, many times. I'm going to recommend James Gray's The Lost City. (laughs) Because it is amazing. It is an amazing piece of cinema. It is like something classical. it's, It's got so much in common with films like Apocalypse Now and Lawrence of Arabia. It features incredible performances. The cinematography is jaw dropping. And what it says about the nature of obsession and the responsibilities towards family and country are extraordinary. And Sienna Miller is Sienna magnificent is in it. As, thing, um, yeah. Last Image is one of the most haunting final images in a film in the mm-hmm. last 12 months. And that is like, it's up there for mm-hmm. me with the last shot in Call Me By Your Name. Lost City of Zed, mm-hmm. I would have fucking killed to have seen this on the big screen. I'm so upset that I didn't because it is mighty. Is a mighty film. And you can find my full review <laughs> at makeswitch.com.au. And they would be the two sixths of Switch who think it's actually a good film. Thank God we've no, gotten no, no, that no, out no, of the mate, way mate, and no, it mate, cannot be used again. But it's again. a great 
film. Same difference. A great, it's a great, great film. film. Four six think it's absolute trash. <laughs> All right, Chris. Now that you can't choose that uh, heinous piece of film, what would you recommend? This How week? are you going to fuck this up, Chris? Because like this has already been one of the most <laughs> tumultuous <laughs> recommendation sequences ever. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to go the straight path. I can feel it. <laughs> no, Charlie. Just like my sexuality, I've never taken the straight path. <laughs> so, for this week's choice, it's not a podcast. It's not a supercut on YouTube. It's on a YouTube channel. A, it's multiple. Because they are oh. Janelle Monae's new music videos for Make Me Feel and Django Jane. Because they are two of the greatest music videos of the 21st century. Janelle Monet is one of the most incredible artists of all time. I'll agree with you. I have so much time for her. The way that she weaves together film literacy, pop culture literacy, racial and social awareness, all of this shit into this one incredible prince infused (laughs) beat is amazing. She's a goddamn goddess. And she deserves every accolade, every bit of respect that can possibly exist. She is my everything. Meryl Streep's going to be so upset to find that out. I know, right? What she does in these two videos to speak about sexuality, about race, about feminism is incredible. And it's these like two, three minute videos for some really fucking catchy pop songs. It's amazing. Well, they were some recommendations. I can't say they were particularly for a great deal of films, but you can find the links to all the articles we've talked about on this week's podcast at maketheswitch.com.au. Please subscribe to Switchcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform, and don't forget to rate us and stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess? At Miss Jess underscore Switch. Daniel? At Daniel Lamon. And Christopher? At Chris C. Edwards. Like it? Follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at MakeTheSwitchAU to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we've discussed on this week's podcast, as well as other episodes, by visiting switchcast.com.au. On next week's show, we'll be taking a look at Golden Globe winner in The Fade and surfing documentary Take Every Wave. Plus, we'll discuss all the Academy Award winners. And for the first time, the very first time, join Charlie and I as we host a live broadcast of this year's Oscars ceremony. You'll be able to Guaranteed find- to be disastrous. Oh my golly gosh, yes. <laughs> You'll Watch be- for fireworks. <laughs> oh, it's going to be three and a half hours of varying levels of entertainment. You'll be able to find the live stream on our Facebook page or maketheswitch.com.au. Varying from mediocre to absolutely unbearable. With Brent and I probably getting drunk on our end as well. So catch that on Monday from 12pm Australian Daylight Saving Time at maketheswitch.com.au. And thanks so much for listening. We'll see you all next week.